You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Immediately, he finished his disi- he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, so we're continuing in our series in the book of Mark, looking at the earliest recorded gospel uh, that looks at the narrative, particularly the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And once again, we're finding ourselves being launched out into the sea with these earliest disciples. We see this pattern, a repeating pattern here from the safety of the shores out into the dangers of the open waters. And similar to what we read earlier in Mark, once again, this is a movement that was Jesus's idea. This wasn't just, they didn't just happen into the waters. Look with me in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. What we looked at last week was this, the wilderness and how really the wilderness serves as the liminal space, the space in between is we're breaking away from the old and breaking into the new. And so if the wilderness is the liminal space, the space in between, then the open waters are really right on the brink. The wilderness brings disorientation, but the waters bring the highest risk of danger and disaster. In the wilderness, you can utilize survival skills. But out in the wind and the waves, you are faced with an absolute, total lack of control. In the wilderness, we pray for provision. On the open seas, we just pray for sheer mercy. In the ancient world, uh, the ancient world saw the sea as a place of unstoppable force and chaos. They saw it as this sort of prehistoric uh, battleground. And one author that really captured the awfulness and really the terror of the ocean, of the seas, best, in my opinion, was Herman Melville in his famous book, Moby Dick. 
which follows the story of a sea that's, that's uh, led by Captain Ahab, who's on this path of revenge to get this whale who bit off his leg. And he says this, the same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Yeah, foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the fair world it yet covers. The, the live sea swallows up ships and crews. No mercy, no power but its own controls it. He goes on to say, consider all this and then turn to this green, gentle, most docile earth. And he says, consider them both, the sea and the land. And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? I love that question. Do you not find a strange analogy here? In other words, do you not learn something about yourself here? See, what we'll note here in Mark is that the sea is where the disciples and the disciple of Jesus Christ learns something about Jesus and themselves. The sea is a place of discovering and uncovering. If you're taking notes, write down those two things. They're not going to be projected, but that's very important to see what's going on here. The sea is a place of discovering and uncovering. And these are both key in our formation as God is creating within us that sanctifying process by the Spirit becoming more like Jesus Christ. The path of discipleship as we apprentice Christ, as we follow Christ, this is key, discovering Jesus and uncovering some things about ourselves. Listen to the words of the famous reformer and theologian John Calvin. He said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. It's, in other words, it's not, it's not very easy to determine where one stops and the other begins. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So why again does Jesus lead the disciples back out into the sea once again? I believe it's because Jesus understands that you learn something about God and you learn something about ourselves out on the waters. And we learn something specifically out on the waters that we just can't learn from the safety of the shores. And so once again, he makes his disciples leave the safety of the shores and embark into the open waters. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage in four movements, looking first at this first point, if you're taking notes, painful headway. Painful headway. Look with me in verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So now to recap, uh, geographically, where we are, the Sea of Galilee sits at about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by these mountain ranges that reach peaks of 9,000 feet. So you can imagine that as the wind whips down these mountains, it's dropping about 10,000 feet in just a matter of miles. And so the winds come on quick, they come on swift, they come on fierce, 
And according to this passage in Mark, they are so strong that if you're in the middle of this sea, it's near impossible to make forward progress. The winds are sudden, they are fierce, and they limit forward progress. In fact, some translations read that he saw them being battered as they rode. So these disciples are being battered by the winds. The idea here is that they are tormented by these hostile winds. The harder they row, the harsher the winds push back. They're totally failing to make headway. As we step back and we look at this passage, we can identify with this in some way or another because life can feel like this sometimes. And for some, life can feel like this all the time. Like the wind of life has rushed down the mountains out of nowhere and is now battering you. You are minding your own business. You are on your your merry little way and then boom, life comes at you fast. The famous philosopher Mike Tyson once said, we all have a plan until you get punched in the mouth. (laughs) Life just comes at you fast. Progress is Painful. You take another step forward, and it seems like you're knocked back again. You're not getting anywhere. But it's not from a lack of trying. Like these disciples, you think, man, if I just keep rowing, if I just keep going, if I just keep fighting, something's going to give. Like, something's got to give, right? But then relief doesn't come. And you realize it's late and it's dark. And to add to all the strain and all the pain and all the frustration, you look around and you realize that you're alone. You're sitting there thinking, wait, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, this was your idea. And here I am in in the middle of the storm, and you are nowhere to be found. You see, Mark gives us the aerial view. And what he does is he pans out the camera for just a moment from the focus on the sea so that we, the reader, can can see the bigger picture of the general landscape. And Mark tells us that one of the most important parts of this story that we're looking at this morning, we can't miss this. This is what he tells us in verse 48. And he saw. Who saw? Jesus saw. They don't see Jesus but that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't see them. See, I know we're, we're very existential beings here. We, we, we typically see life through our own narrow perspective. I have to see it to believe it. My view is the total truth. What I know to be true, what I see to be true is ultimate truth. But it's vital to remember this. That the most important thing in a storm is not whether or not we see Jesus. The most important thing when we're in the storm is that Jesus sees us. You hear me? The most important thing is not that we see Jesus, but it's the fact that Jesus sees us. One author put it this way, faint hearts may even have begun to wonder whether the Lord himself had not abandoned them to their fate or to doubt the reality of Christ. They are to learn from the story that they are not forsaken. Friend, you are not forsaken. Can you do me a favor and turn to your neighbor and say, you are not forsaken. 
that the Lord watches over them, unseen, and that he himself, no phantom, no ghost, but the living one, master of the wind and the waves, will surely come quickly for their salvation, even though it may be in the fourth watch of the night. Friend, you are not forsaken. You may not see him right now, but he sees you. The second movement in this passage we see is passing by. Look at me in verse 48 through 51. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus walks. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And so they cried out, and they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now, I've always thought that this scene was a little bit strange. It it, it sort of reads like that awkward run-in at the grocery store where you look across the way and you see that person that you've had beef with for years. And so all of a sudden, you go covert operations, right? You start, you look to the person next to you, you start doing those like army signals, and you you duck in, and you're, you're, you're hiding behind end caps, and you're moving through, and you, you're looking at the escapes, and you're making your way. And just as you're making your way through the frozen section to go to the baggage claim, or to baggage claim, to go to where you, uh, you pay, and you have to pay for your bags now, you turn the corner, and you're like, oh, hey. He passed by them. But they see him, and they start to scream, what's going on? It reads like he's trying to, to like, dodge them, right? It reads like he's sort of, like, trying to pass by them without being noticed. And it can read like that unless we really see the story in light of the whole of Scripture. And it all, what's going on here all seems to hinge on, on this one phrase that he intended to pass by them. See, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God had led the children of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he was bringing them into the promised land, and he's, the, the children of Israel are passing through the wilderness. And Moses comes to God, and he says, you've told me to lead the people ahead, but I'm telling you right now, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. Like, if you don't go before us, I'm donezo. And so the Lord says... The Lord says to, uh, to Moses, all right, you found favor in my sight. I'll go with you. And so Moses is feeling sort of bold. And so he makes a huge request. In Exodus 33, we read this. Moses said, well, then please show me your glory. And he said, and note these words. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, there it is again, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And further on in Exodus, we read this, that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see the connection here? Jesus passes by them. The Lord passes by Moses. As Jesus passes by them on the waves, it's not intended to forsake them. He does not intend to startle them. He intends to reveal something to them. This is, a, this is an event that theologians call a theophany. It's a manifestation of the transcendent Lord. And I find this interesting because God says, you can't see me and live. And yet, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have indeed seen God. What he's essentially saying is that the God who passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, the God who many, or a few hundred years later passed by Elijah on the very same mountain, the God whom Job describes as walking upon the waters, the God whom the Psalms describe as commanding the seas, that God, it is I. I am he. In fact, look at me in verse 50. He says, take heart, it is I. In other words, I am he. See, this would, have, this would have sparked something in the disciples' memory, especially being those who were familiar with the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures. They would have been reminded of an, another interaction between God and Moses where God shows up at the burning bush and he calls Moses to go to deliver the people and he says, well, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? What is your name? And God says, Tell them, I am sent you. Take heart, it is I. Take heart, I am he. I am is in the storm with you. I am is stepping into your boat. He walks upon the waters, which means that he is in the storm with you, and yet he is above the chaos. This is a picture that God is both transcendent and imminent. In other words, he is high above and yet intimately near. I am is in the storm with you. I am has stepped into your boat. But you see, we're conflicted. And here's why we're conflicted. One is we all want to see God. I've never met an individual that would pass on an opportunity to witness God, whether atheist, agnostic, or faithful believer. No one would pass on an opportunity to see God. We all want to witness God. But here's where we're conflicted. We don't want to meet him where he appears. We long for his appearance, but we resist going to the places that he often appears. There's an important thing for us to note here. It's not on the mountaintop that Jesus now appears to these disciples in glory. See, the mountaintop is where the prophets went to seek God's presence. That's where Moses is in the presence of God. That's where Elijah journeys for 40 days to go and meet with the presence of God. But here, it's not on the mountaintop. It's in the sea. And more specifically, it's in the storm. The mountain peak is where you can look out on your life and look out on your world with certainty and control. But the sea is where every wave is blinding. My challenge to you is ask any seasoned believer, and they will tell you that it was in the midst 
of the storm that they have experienced the presence of God most vividly? Ask them this question. Was it on the mountaintop or was it in the storm? We see him passing by. Thirdly, you guys still with me this morning? Okay. We see the panicked disciples. See, as a storm is an opportunity for Jesus to display his glory, it's also an opportunity for the disciples to reveal something within them as well. It's an opportunity to reveal specifically their fear and their doubt. See, the wind and the waves have the ability to do that. The wind and the waves have the ability to really draw out what's going on inside of us. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India in the 19th century. And she has profoundly shaped the way that I've come to understand myself and really my reaction to certain situations. And she essentially said this. She said, when a cup is bumped, what comes out, what was, uh, uh, let me say it this way. When a cup is bumped, what was in it comes out. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But think of the depths of that. When a cup cup is, is jarred, what was in it comes out. And here's why this is profound. Because I, like many people, like to blame my ungodly responses on my circumstances. I like to blame my outbursts of anger on the things that frustrate me. I like to blame my bitterness on the person who I believe wronged me. I like to blame my doubts on unanswered prayers and canceled plans. I like to blame the things that are coming out of my life on the things that surround me. But Amy Carmichael reminded me what was in the cup is what comes out. See, the storms are not the reason for our reactions. They are, they are the, the opportunity for them. And we get that mixed up. We, we, we think that the things that surround us are really the catalyst and the source of our ungodly responses, but what we see is actually that the storms just draw out what's brewing inside. The jolt is incapable of changing the content, content of the cup. The jolt simply uncovers it. And so when we're placed in situations where we're absolutely outside of our control, when we are too being battered by the storms, this is when we very quickly meet the us that we are otherwise content to try to suppress and and mask. See, in times of success, in times of ease, in times of comfort, it's really easy to keep it together. When things are going our way, when things are not frustrating, when the winds are not battering us, it's very easy to keep those things at bay and keep those things masked and suppressed. But it's when we're taken outside of our control and that frustration sets in that what's been brewing inside begins to bubble over. The dark fears, the crippling mistrust, that ugly bitterness, that sick desire for revenge, And ultimately, what we see in this passage, that hardness of heart. See, Mark Mark gives us insight into why these disciples panicked. And really, Mark gives us insight into why we panic and why we fret at the first sign of a storm, why, why we essentially do strange things as well. Look at me in verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, 
but their hearts were hardened. So remember the scene right before this. Jesus breaks the bread, blesses it, multiplies it, and 5,000 men are fed. But Mark adds a little bit of commentary here and says they, they didn't understand about the loaves. So what these battering winds and the waves reveal, not create, reveal, is one, a general hardness of heart. This is something that we all experience. This is something that we all battle. And this is something that we all will be confronted with when the storms of life face us. But secondly, Mark tells us it's a failure to apply what we know to be true about God to our circumstances. Why do we wild out? Because we fail to apply what we know to be true about God to what we're facing in the moment. Remember, the disciples just watched Jesus miraculously provide food for 5,000 people. They get in the boat, and then Mark tells us immediately they panic. They forgot that the same one that provides watches over. Now, I can identify with these disciples because I know from my own life that head knowledge can often fail to become heart knowledge. We can intellectually assent to the the beliefs of Christianity, what we know to be true about God, and at the first sign of a storm, we are freaking out. Why? Because head knowledge has failed to become heart knowledge. What's interesting about the storm scene uh, that we're reading about this morning in comparison to what we read about earlier in Mark is that this time, the disciples are not in immediate danger of dying. Yes, the, the sea could swallow them at any given moment. But there's nothing in this passage that indicates that they're like right on the brink of death. It says that they're making painful headway. So the question is, why does Jesus meet them on the water? Why is Jesus appearing? Why, if it's not to save them from death, what's the point at all? And I believe the answer is this, that Jesus has come to rescue them from their own hardness of heart. They think that the storm around them is the big issue. What they fail to see is that the storm around them pales in comparison to the storm that's brewing within. Jesus crosses over to save us, listen, from us. This is what Jesus did for his first disciples, and this is what Jesus continues to do for us today. Now, we may be tempted to think, man, if I saw Jesus in the flesh perform a miracle, then I would have a totally, if, I mean, if I saw Jesus heal the paralytic and multiply the bread, raise someone from the dead, I mean, I would, I would, I would always believe, I would never panic in the storm. I would, I would never experience hardness of heart. But we forget what Jesus did and that Jesus has done the miraculous in our lives and yet our hearts are often cold and hard-hearted towards Jesus as well. Now you may be asking, well, when did Jesus do this in my life? What miracle has Jesus performed for me? See, what we see on the Sea of Galilee here in Mark chapter six is actually an illustration of our own lives. It's a glimpse into what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of St. Augustine. He said, for you had been cast forth 
far from your home. The way has been washed out by the waves of this world and there is no way to cross over to the homeland unless you are carried. For this reason, he walked on the sea that he might show you that there's a way upon the sea, but you who cannot in any way yourself walk on the sea, let yourself be carried by the ship, be carried by the cross. See, here in Mark, Jesus walks upon the waters, but later in Mark, what we're going to read is that at the cross, Jesus was actually plunged into the waters of God's judgment in the chaos of death for the sake of our sin, for the sake of our rebellion against God. Upon a boat in Galilee, he came to the rescue for a handful of men, but at the cross at Calvary, Jesus came to the rescue for humanity. Jesus came to the rescue for you. What miracle has he performed for me? He died and he rose and he ascended and he's coming back. So that we could be brought back home. So that we could cross the impossible sea that divides us from true life and true freedom. Like Noah and his family back in Genesis, we too can safely pass through the waters of judgment and death, not in an ark, but upon the cross. And more specifically, in union with Christ through faith. See, the disciples ought to have understood the loaves. This is what Mark is saying. The disciples, like me, and maybe you, are a little bit dense. And they should have understood the loaves. They should have understood what's going on here. But here's the point. So should we. So next time we are tempted to panic or doubt God or doubt the existence of God or doubt the presence of Jesus Christ at the first sight of a storm, we too need to apply what we know to be true of God to our situation. We too need to remember that the one who multiplied the bread in the wilderness and shed his blood upon the cross is the same one who has stepped into our boat. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so in moments of panic, when fear sets in, when panic and anxiety sets in, when we're questioning what is going on, the most important question is not going to be, what am I going to do? The most important question is not, how hard do I need to keep rowing? The most important question is, do we have what it takes to get out of this? The most important question For the child of God is who is with me? Who has stepped into my boat? Who walks upon the chaos of my life? Let's look lastly at this last movement of this passage. We lastly see pushed off course. Now, this account concludes with Jesus and his disciples safely crossing over and being greeted by multitudes of of people. People are coming in droves to be healed. Lives are being transformed. Entire communities are coming to Jesus Christ. Like, guys, this is the stuff we live for. Like, this is why reality exists. To see people healed in the presence of Jesus Christ. To see lives transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. To see this. Like, this is the stuff. But there's something we can't ignore. Look with me in verse 53. 
when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Now, if you look back at verse 45, Mark tells us that Jesus commanded them to go to Bethsaida. That's where they were originally heading. Now they land in Gennesaret. So one town is northeast, another is southwest from their original departure. So catch this, okay? They would not have come here. These lives would not have been healed if the winds had not pushed them off course. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans. We tend to think being thrown off course is a bad thing. Right? That if, we think if our plans failed, we failed. Or worse, we think if our plans failed that God has failed us. And friend, it's time to change our thinking. Look around right now. This is a room filled with failed plans. Like how many plans, failed plans, would we bring together if we collected all of our failed plans and put them all in one basket? They'd be overflowing like the bread previously. Lots of us are where we are today. Lots of us are here today in Stockton. Not necessarily because things went our way, but because things didn't go our way. You were headed to Bethsaida, and you landed in Gennesaret. The storms pushed you off course. The wind has blown you backwards. But it is never for no reason. That failed plan, that lack of forward progress, that being knocked back again, It's never for no reason. Today, we can rest in the wisdom of the Proverbs. Listen to the writer of the Proverbs. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So what that means is that for the child of God, your failed plans are simply God's redirection. Your failed plans are not the plans that slip through God's hands, and he's like, oh, shoot, let that one go. They are the providence of God the hidden hand of God redirecting you to get you where he wants you. And here you are right now for such a time as this. And so my challenge to you today, my challenge to you this week is to simply look around and see the lives that God is seeking to transform through your redirection. To relinquish all your bitterness and all your frustration and all of your disappointment about all your failed plans, and see the people that God has brought into your life all around you. Life's to transform through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's your choice. Because you will face a turning point, whether it's now or later, you're gonna face this turning point. You're gonna face that failed plan. You are gonna be pushed back. You're gonna be headed northeast, and you're gonna be pushed southwest. And so here's your choice. You can sit on the shore forever asking, how did I get here? 
where you can look around and open your eyes to the possibility of the resurrection and all the possibilities that surround you and spread the healing grace of Jesus Christ where the wind has blown you. Your failed plans are God's gracious, providential redirection for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of your joy. Amen?